like we we don't like even if you think iot stuff it's like it's always built to to give us some convenience or or whatever yet we don't really think a whole lot about the user when we're building stuff we get into like oh you know this algorithm is pretty cool and you know how am i going to structure this code and how's it going to be maintainable and you know um it it's it it it's all about you know the company or the individual it's not about why why am i actually building this thing <laughs> what's it meant to to solve for the customer listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Friends uh, of the podcast, I wanted to introduce you to a very good friend of mine, uh, J.D. Trask. We interviewed him uh, with the book Achieving DevOps. And uh, JD, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about uh, what you do with Raygun? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for, for having me on, on your podcast, David. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And the opportunity to, to have, uh, take part in the book, which was cool. Um, yeah, so so most people call me JD. My first name is, is actually John Daniel. Um, and so uh, that's hyphenated. That's why everybody just calls me JD. Um, my parents kind of couldn't decide on the name. Um, and so they decided it was either a hyphen or a divorce. And so I got a hyphen and now I have to explain my name to everybody for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Raygun. We're headquartered out of Wellington, New Zealand, which is also where my, my accent is from. It's it's not from sort of morning drinking or anything like that. Um, but yeah, and I have been in love with software since I was, I taught myself to code when I was uh, nine um, on that on that computer I mentioned earlier, 486SX25 with eight megabytes of RAM and a 213 megabyte hard drive. Um, and I just, I, I loved it, right? I was like, this is amazing. And then um, got into business as well. Uh, and, and I basically always say I kind of live at that intersection of business and and, uh, and software. I, I love the creative angles for, for both um, that are in there. And I have also spent a bunch of time in the US. So our company does have a, an office in Seattle. So I was up there for a few years um, as well. So that's, that's probably my, my best intro. <laughs> Now, and you said you, you got into business as well. Do you have a business major? Was this through self-study? Um, how, how did you kind of, most people just stick it in one field or the other. Yeah, so I, um, I around that time that I was nine uh, and I was, I was sort of figuring out QBasic in DOS and I was like, this, this is amazing. And then um, I, I think, I was very, very fortunate that I figured out what I wanted to do with my life at a very young age. And um, you know, I know, I know that that's a blessing because I know most people don't have that. But at the time I was like, wow, this, this software development thing is just, it's, it's cool, man. Like I'm loving what I can do here. Uh, and then I, I think we had Encarta 94 and, uh, you know, this was pre-internet. So I'm like, I type in software and I'm, I'm reading through the, the info in there and it's like, oh, there's this, this article about this dude, uh, you know, William Henry Gates, the third. I'm like reading this and I'm like, okay, yeah, obviously Microsoft make this stuff. And I'm like, man, this, this dude's doing pretty well. There, there must be some money in software as well. Like not only this thing that I absolutely have just fallen in love with, but it could actually be something that uh, is, you know, 
really quite profitable. Um, and I come from a family that that did run a run a business. My dad worked from home. He was a, a wooden joiner. Um, so uh, we would often talk about. Uh, finances and things around the the dinner table. We understood kind of, you know, generally how the business was going. Um, And so I thought, well, you know, I I love the fact that software gives us the power to amplify human ability, right? Like I can write some code and and, and achieve something far more than if I was physically doing it. And in my mind, business is actually the same sort of concept. It's how can we achieve more by working together? You know, and a business in my mind is, is nothing more than that as a team of people on a shared shared mission. Um, and so thinking, well, if I could combine those two, that would be that'd be a pretty powerful combo. Um, so I was this weird kid in New Zealand. Uh, you know, you go to high school is about it's about 11. And on day one, I went to see the careers counselor. It's <laughs> like, right, I want to build a software company. What what subjects do I need to do? And he was he was pretty uh, puzzled about why why uh, an 11 year old seemed hell bent on building a software company. Um, and, and he didn't actually give me very good advice. And so I, I was asking some friends recently, I was like, what was I actually like as a teenager? And they were like, yes, I like this guy that just had this like, you had this mission. And like as long as we didn't get in the way of the mission, you were a good friend. Um, and I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, and so then I, I felt like I had to go to university and get a degree. And, and to your actual question, business or software? And so I ended up doing this degree called a Bachelor of Information Science uh, at Massey University in uh, New Zealand here. And the reason I chose that, it was a three-year degree and it had one more elective than the Bachelor of Science. And so I just stuffed all of the electives with uh, business papers. So they were like, you know, intro to finance, um, you know, uh, commercial law and all of that. And then I did the all of the, the core papers were all on, you know, how do you build a CPU, how does software work? Um, and I was just like, I need to get the hell out of out of uni as fast as I can. So if I can kind of blend the both together, um, this would be a win. And I kind of also rationalized it as, as thinking, well, if I got a business degree, that would be useful, but I don't think I'm going to go out into the industry and make as much money as quickly. And, you know, I, I mentioned I, my, my dad had a, had a business, but in no way did I come from like a, a, a rich family. My parents sort of very much instilled a, a sense of, you know, um, of, of the value of money in us. And so I thought, well, if I'm a software developer, I'll make more money straight out the gate and that'll allow me to accumulate some capital in order to be able to afford to step out and start a business. And so I did that three-year degree. I worked for three years in, a, in another company, and then I, I stepped out and started started a business. Um, I did run some businesses on the side, but you know it was always more in a the idea of what can I learn, how can I get better at this game. Sorry, quite was a it, long answer. Was it? No, I love it. What was it? Was it hard for you to step away from a paying job to start your own company? I mean, a lot of us dream about doing that, but few of us actually take that plunge. Yeah, it's it's a funny one because. Um, it, it definitely was quite scary. Like um, uh, I, I, rash, uh, I sort of think about it now, and, and I think at the time, um, I think it took me about three years to accumulate probably about, I think I had about $60,000 saved up. Um, and, and to put it in context, when I, when I moved to the city we're based in now um, after graduating, I literally came here with $200. So, you know, I'd, I'd saved a lot. And I used to get feedback from my, my, my mom saying like, you know, hey, m- maybe you should actually go out a little bit and, you know, maybe like enjoy a little bit of life. And I was like, no, <laughs> I want to do this thing. And I kind of think now, you know, obviously I've got far more responsibilities. 
I don't know if it in my in my mid thirties that I would consider sixty k in savings enough for me to make that jump. But when I was when I was twenty three, it was a case of kind of going, yeah, well, you know, uh, I could pay rent for for like several years on this. But I was also pretty extreme. Um, so you know, I I optimize. I actually have you, obviously this is an audio podcast, but I have a um, framed. Uh, we we call them two minute noodles down here. I don't don't remember if I saw them in the states. They're pretty crappy noodles. They cost me seventeen cents a bag. They they tasted like garbage. Um, and so I went and bought these, and it's like, well, I'm just going to eat this until I get this company like you know making some money and being able to pay me, uh, which was you know. So now it's it's framed on the wall of my office here, and it says, "In loving memory of the lean beginnings," and it was made by one of our team when they found this whole pile of the leftover uh, <laughs> two minute noodles in a back room somewhere. Um, so you know, it it is scary, uh, and and the biggest challenge I. I I see other folks, we were quite fortunate uh, in, in, in the success that came our way, but is you kind of have these, these dueling like messages, which is business is hard. You've got to stick it out and you've got to be persistent, but also you've got to know when what you're doing isn't working and only you can decide what side of the balance you're on with that. And so I see some folks that kind of go out there and it's like, yeah, well, business is meant to be hard. So it's taking me years. And you're like, no, that's just not working. Um, you know, versus, that, that, that was more what I concerned myself with was like, how will I know if we're actually should be changing, changing tact? Um, and we were quite fortunate as well. Uh, your, your, your employer actually, uh, Microsoft. Um, uh, when we started the company, they they came to us uh, and said, "Hey, how about uh, you do this contract for us to um, build demoware on how folks should be building a modern, uh, scalable Web 2.0 application?" And so we did that, and the total value of that contract was about a quarter of a million dollars. And so while we didn't go out and get any sort of seed funding or anything, um, that contract really was our, our seed capital in a way. We, we worked on that project for, for a few months um, and that kind of gave us the cash in the bank uh, in there. So we're very fortunate uh, to, to get that opportunity from, from Microsoft New Zealand. So if you could go back, say 20 years ago, um, what's the advice you'd give yourself, like running a business? Is it watch the watch the well, expenses? I mean, I'm I'm curious about you. You have a, a perspective here that I'm really fascinated by. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the things I think is super interesting to me is, and this is this is maybe quite relatable, maybe to to the audience, is that I kind of feel like for whatever reason, uh, software engineering types and stuff, money is like a dirty thing. Like I think. I think that's yes. why it, it, and it's not the, it's not the whole reason, but you know it's like when you see there's so much open source and it's like how you know it, and I see these people raging about like but these companies are using it they're not paying us it's like well you you know you put the damn sofa on the lawn with a sign saying take me you can't complain that they didn't leave a pile of money behind um, you know <laughs> but there's this there's just this thing where it's like anything about money is 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 gross and we we want to pretend it doesn't exist you've got to change that mentality if you're going to run a business you know like I'm in there looking at our profit and loss and cash statement every day like I need I I know to the cent where we are. And you bet your bottom dollar, I'm going to be asking people to pay us money. Um, and so you've got to kind of overcome that. Um, I did already have that sort of uh, mentality uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the, the, the thing that I would, would sort of advise myself, though, and, and to anybody out there that is, uh, had the similar blessing of, of knowing exactly what they wanted to do, is um, 
just because you know what you want to do doesn't necessarily mean you need to do it as fast as you possibly can. So um, I probably should have sort of just enjoyed life a little bit more. You know, I was always the kid that was in a hurry. Um, and, and I kind of looked back and go, you know what? I should have, I you know, probably should have gone to some more parties. Like, you know, I uh, it, yeah, that, that would probably be the, the life advice um, as well. That's funny. It kind of ties back with your, your friend saying, well, you were, you know, you had a mission and as long as we weren't in the way, you were a really good friend, you know? So it, it's a, it's a kind of life <laughs> lesson about people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny. Money yeah, is that, yeah. that third of those dirty topics along with politics and religion. And it shouldn't be. Yeah, money is how the world turns and we all need it, you know? And so it, it's, oh, it's, I think the secrecy around it, um, it, it hurts rather than helps. It actually helps uh, prevent us from being successful financially and it adds to our stress load. I, I totally agree. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's an underlying mechanism for helping us cooperate. You know, it, it, it always strikes me as a, you know, highlight. I, I don't think capitalism is like the perfect model, but when people seem to be like, you know, <laughs> tear down capitalism, I'm like, wow, you, you really demonstrate that you haven't kind of looked back on, on like why this is the best system we've found so far. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> there was some pretty shitty systems out there and, like I say, I'm not in here defending capitalism as the best thing ever. It's it's totally not. I see the inequalities and the problems that are arising, um, but it's not bad for actually getting everybody kind of you know uh, trying to trying to move the world forward together. Yeah, especially if you spend time in places like uh, centrally planned economies, like in Eastern Europe, and look at the way people lived over there. It's uh... Hard to argue that capitalism doesn't have some benefit. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's actually a really fun book. Uh, it's pr it's pretty dense. It's called The Rational Optimist. Um, and I, I read it a few, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, and it, oddly, it's it's actually a book that sort of tells the history of um, of human evolution effectively, um, and talks about you know the division of labor and how that is actually the cornerstone of of human achievement and so uh, it's a fascinating book that that does kind of show you the path of like how did we actually get here and what were some of the things that could have been the alternatives and why were they like bad ideas um you know like one of the most things that really struck me when i read it was they were talking about uh this point you know human beings in the in in the, the plains of africa somewhere and they work out, you know, that, oh, uh, maybe Dave, you can go and like, you know, hunt some food, you know, and, and I'm going to sit here and make fishing hooks or something, you know, and then we'll trade some stuff. And they said, you know, even today, it's that they, they've done these studies. If you gave one monkey a banana and you gave another monkey, say an orange, and let's say that the monkey that has the banana prefers oranges and the monkey that, that has the orange prefers bananas they won't trade. Like that was actually the defining thing was that humans could understand that something had value to somebody else that may be different to the value that they, that they see in something. And so that trade sort of started to happen. And that's what led to the, the division of labor um, that then, you know, helped us actually achieve far more. If you had to, you know, if for this call, you had to have 
build a computer from the ground up and build an internet cable and, you know, build VoIP software. Like, we'd never get anything done, right? It's how we lowered the cost of everything to these these unimaginably low costs by everybody sort of being able to work on, on what they, they'd like to specialize in. And I'm, I'm curious what Sorry, led yeah. you to... No, this this is interesting, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious what led you to kind of settle on, like, Reagan's growth into the field of, like, you know, crash reporting, uh, real user monitoring, yeah. APM. What led you to kind of settle on this? This is the, a part of the industry that um, a lot of people would consider an afterthought or last place. I think that frustrates you and me. Oh, yeah, it certainly frustrates frustrates me no end. But, um, you know, the weird thing is if I look back even at the software I was writing as a teenager, I was often writing software that would be reporting on software. I wanted to understand the system. I've always liked to have a, a low-level understanding of how stuff works. Um, but I always found that these sorts of things helped you stand out. As a, as a software developer. So while the concept of crash reporting or real user monitor APM or whatever uh, is, is sort of getting more understood these days, I look back to those, say, three years that I was uh, working um, for someone else. And my business partner, his name is Jeremy Boyd, he's an exceptional engineer. And the, the two of us met at that, uh, at that former employer. And... Uh, we were we were pretty well known for our ability to get far more code written than most other people and generally have it done to a to a higher quality bar which you know helped us for example get that that contract with Microsoft because we we were actually well known enough in the even in the broader community uh for that quality side um and funnily enough um you know part of the reason that that we, that we achieved that was because both of us used to put code into our software that auto-reported unhandled exceptions to our inbox. Um, and this was in like 2004-ish, yeah. Um, and just because we had better intelligence on what the hell was happening with the software, uh, we could be improving this stuff much faster than than other people. And, and that approach didn't really standardize in the business. We also sort of uh, ended up setting up build servers uh, in 2004 probably about 2005, I'm guessing, maybe 2006. Uh, like, so there was cruisecontrol.net, you know, um, and so we'd, we'd scripted all that. I, I ran a build server actually at that point under the stairs in my house too for my home projects. But we, we did this at work. But of course, at that point, uh, even even as a business, they were not saying, well, here's a server to install this on. I actually just set the build server up like on my PC in the background so that the teams I was working on, um, you know, when they committed code into visual source safe um it would pull it out you know build the stuff and, and have the artifacts um which kind of made it a pain for me because obviously when it was doing stuff my computer was a bit slow um but again this wasn't even adopted by the company but it allowed us to be like well no our deployment pipeline lets us like out execute any other teams um and it was just weird to me that it's like okay wait these guys are absolutely killing it <laughs> you know, what are they doing nobody actually asked us that question and if we actually told people very little interest in adopting these sorts of technologies and it still kind of blows my mind and i, I think it does probably yours as well i'm sort of sitting here going guys it's 2019 and it seems like a lot of people are going hey you know what cicd seems like a step in the right direction and it's like yeah, it's been 15 years. Like at some point, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know I, I hear, this, here. hear this wheel thing is really cool and new. We should try wheels instead of square blocks. <laughs> yeah. well, and that's the thing. I feel like CI and CD is, is finally like pretty mainstream. And I know we talked about this when we worked, worked on the book a little bit. 
But I'm sort of sitting here going, so what Raygun does is we kind of have all this instrumentation in your code and we're telling you what breaks. We're telling you about your customer experience around load times. We're, we're tracking your slow database queries. We've, we've got all this intelligence about what's happening once you've shipped the product. And the bit that blows my mind is, is it's like, so you put all the effort into your CI and CD pipeline. If you don't have this stuff that's reporting back, you don't actually have a closed loop, right? And to, to really accelerate, You've got to close that loop so that I can ship to prod really quickly. And then minutes later, you know, I'm, I'm getting uh, all of this intel about, well, that work that I did, was it good? Was it shit? Should I roll it back? Should we, I, what should I do? Um, and so without that, it seems really obvious to me, you know, <laughs> I built this company. That that's the next stage. I'm just a little concerned that it's going to be 2030 and people are still going to be like, you know what, CI and CD is DevOps. And it's going to be like, oh, for the love of, you know. <laughs> um, so nowadays, you know, we still have this situation in, in Wellington here. Um, you know, we get that most people don't know. New Zealand's actually a very, uh, very successful country when it comes to technology. You know, I'm in, yeah, that, I'm in Wellington, the whole country. I did not know that a year and a half ago, but I kept running into experts. Yeah from new zealand so very vibrant i can see out the window of my office here uh the buildings for two multi-billion dollar tech companies that were built from the ground up in, in new zealand new zealand only has four and a half million people you know we're the size of a fairly large you know a city in america but we, we do pretty well but the thing is even here is people are like well how the heck are these ray gun folks able to deliver so much quality code with a relatively small team you know and I'm sort of sitting here going, you know, it's no real secret. We just use our own products <laughs> like to, to move forward pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's great having a market that is expanding uh, underneath us. There's obviously a lot of players in it. Um, and we're all sort of collectively more growing the pie than necessarily having to, to poach customers from each other because there's just so much opportunity out there. It is kind of interesting about New Zealand that um, it seems like you guys are really good at two things, uh, rugby and, and DevOps. So I don't know, is you know maybe Scrum is a common. It, it is interesting, though, that it's such a vibrant community. And it, it has to be um, a little difficult running a global company out of a, a place as um, isolated in terms of travel times um, as New Zealand. Yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a challenge. So, you know, when, when we were uh, in... So we have the offices well in Seattle, and that's primarily around customer success and helping our customers, you know, uh, achieve better results. But uh, when I was living over there, I would I would come back to to HQ down here about every two months um, for a couple of weeks, and it was 24 hours. I mean, it was 24 hours door to door, um, even though you know it was three flights. The longest one's about I guess 11 and a half, 12 hours. Um, over the Pacific Ocean there. The, the good thing is um, that, uh, like you say, that the, the people here, we actually have great infrastructure. So it was funny. I moved to Seattle, literally like on Westlake Avenue opposite, so the, the, um, the Amazon sort of, you know, headquarters. And everybody was like, yeah, you've got to, like, there's, a, there's these websites and they'll tell you which places have gigabit internet. It's like, okay, cool. But, you know, in New Zealand, in the, in the main cities, we, we have gigabit fiber, you know, we've had that for a while. You don't have to find a website that says which buildings have it. If it doesn't have it, you can ring up the telco and probably have it in a couple of weeks and it doesn't cost you any money. Um, you know, it's it's pretty progressive on that front. And I think mm. part of it comes from the fact that um, 
we do suffer. I talk a lot at business events about this. New Zealand's biggest blocker is the fact that we have the tyranny of distance. We're like the farthest from friggin' everywhere. We're like, you are. You know? yeah. And so, yeah. And so I sit there and I'm like, so why are we building these businesses that put stuff on boats and have to send them around? The world? Like, that just seems both like not playing to our strength. It also seems, you know, in, in today's world of, of um, being mindful of impact on climate, like just horribly inefficient. Well, if we have software, we can be sending out, you know, charged electrons while dollars come in. That seems like a much better uh, export opportunity. Um, the one thing also, maybe I don't think this is my driving force, but I've often thought about it from the fact that our biggest challenge when it does come to digital technologies is actually the latency. You know, there's that quote, the speed of light sucks. Um, and so, for example, most of our software is hosted with AWS um, on the uh, East Coast as a as a slight nod to our friends at Microsoft, I will say we're on AWS because we, we started using AWS before Azure was really kind of doing much and, you know, just haven't haven't moved. But the thing is, we're, we're almost the furthest we could possibly be from our servers. And so, you know, I, I actually kind of like that because it means that if the team here feel like our app is the slowest it could possibly be <laughs> they'll want to make it fast for themselves and that'll make it lightning fast for the customers that are a little bit closer <laughs> to, to those servers. that's really great <laughs> yeah. that's good I, I really enjoy that it is interesting what you said earlier though about closing the loop um so many times when i was running a team i i remember uh, it was very much like working blindfolded um I had no idea what success meant. Um, I know that that we get these requests for new features from sometimes very mm -hmm. opinionated project managers and business analysts, but we didn't really know what our usage was. We didn't know how do we measure if this would be successful. And secondly, we were the last to know when things broke or how things were actually running. And we didn't really care about the end user's experience, like in terms of response time. It, it was yep. painful how, and I think that's not unusual for most large enterprises. I, I think it's not that unusual, it, but I would I would say it's not that unusual even for, for smaller ones. Um, I, you know, maybe if it's a brand new startup that can actually, you know, build on the shoulders of folks that have been building all of this tooling, it's maybe less of an issue. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, you, you can look at so many things. If you do not have a feedback loop, how can you actually really improve? Right, and so most people are waiting on the customers to complain as their feedback loop, uh, and that's a pretty crappy uh, feedback loop. When we first built Raygun, we actually instrumented one of our earlier products, and we found that um, the the ratio was effectively one customer in every hundred would actually tell us that something was crashing, and so we sit there looking at this data and it's like, well, you know, if we have five customers talking to us about these issues, we might think, oh, there's a small issue, but actually we have a, we have a terrible issue, you know, because most of them are just pissed off and, and leave, you know, as, as odd as it sounds, I've often thought that these sort of tools should perhaps come out of the marketing budget because think about the fact that the marketing team is going, well, we've got this big budget, but we've got to buy customers and we pay this to acquire a customer. Well, if the software is shitty, <laughs> it drives up that cost to acquire a customer quite dramatically. Um, and so getting that feedback automated is super, super powerful uh, in, in helping people move move more quickly, satisfy their customers. Um, and the, the other thing that, I, that I, was, I was actually thinking about in the shower this morning, um, 
you know so with i don't know that you can actually cite probably any piece of software in existence that wasn't built ultimately for a human need right mm-hmm. <laughs> like we we don't like even if you think iot stuff it's like it's always built to, to give us some convenience or or whatever yet we don't really think a whole lot about the user when we're building stuff we get into like oh you know this algorithm is pretty cool and you know how am i going to structure this code and how's it going to be maintainable and you know um it it's it it's it's all about you know the company or the individual it's not about why why am i actually building this thing <laughs> what's it meant to to solve for the customer yeah i find that pretty rare thinking i think um when I talk with my customers quite often, they're oftentimes focused on uh, improving their release management in some way, which is good. But I said, you need to pay attention to these. It's usually a problem at the start or at the end of the garden hose. There's there's a kink, one of those two places. So for instance, when we're adding our stories, can we put it in the terms of hypothesis-driven development where this is a guess. We will know this guess is successful if we get this number of users or, you know, and then secondly, you know, as far as monitoring how our software is actually working in production, you know, can we take those top two bugs and, and fold them into our development so we have a, a, a true live, continuously improving backlog that's really based on what the customer is screaming for us to, to fix? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's, I, I think you're sort of alluding to something we, we talked about earlier there, which is certainly, you know, um, how how do you prioritize this sort of work? You right. know, how do you find the time? Um, and, and yeah, we talked about one of our customers because larger customers obviously have more errors and more problems. And they, they sort of found like, oh, my goodness, this, this feels like a tire fire, you know, and I'm sitting here with a water pistol, you know. Um, sometimes people just kind of go, let, 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 let's just back away from that. Uh, but you're right, you know, our, our recommended a way, way that folks think about this is that they kind of go, so within our crash reporting tool and, and, and most others as well, you can usually sort of sort by the number of impacted customers. Um, and that's usually just doing something as simple as, you know, stamp a GUID somewhere so that you can kind of do a distinct count on it. It's nothing, nothing fancy or doesn't necessarily need you to actually expose any sort of PII data, but it gives you that idea of like, is this one customer that generated 10,000 errors in their browser because of a shitty browser extension? Or is this 10,000 customers experiencing this issue and, and going away? Um, and so you sort on that rather than the count of errors and then fix the top two most customer impacting issues. And we've seen this even in Raygun using our own tools is that, frankly, uh, if you want to move the business forward, half the time it's just a case of going, let's go fix these bugs. Um, you know, let's just resolve these issues and make the thing better. Um, you know, I think it's somewhat telling. I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's their primary reason for winning. But have you noticed the trend in the in the megacorps around things like, you know, Google, super, super stonkingly fast, you know, never goes down. And they kind of had that as their mantra early in the, you know, very early on in the piece. You know, they even cite it kind of in the in the social network movie where, you know, Zuck loses his, loses his rag because he's like, if the user has a bad experience, they're going to leave and that creates a negative feedback cycle. Like there's this attention to, we have to give the user a great experience. You know, Amazon, oh my God, the stuff that I've done to try and make sure that Amazon.com is blazingly fast to load, even if it's got lots of content, you know, and it's like, I don't think it's a complete 
while it's not maybe their, their key reason for success, it's certainly a contributor to building trust and engagement with their users, right? To not even give you a reason to say, I'm going to look for an alternative. Um, and I think, I think progressively and baking it into the DNA to have a constant improvement program is, is really important to long-term success. And I remember like with, with my applications and looking through the error logs, for instance, on our web servers, that we'd be mining through it and, and we'd be overwhelmed just by the sheer number. But you said in your interview with me, well, you know, shoot, it, it may not be that that difficult through aggregation, like like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So we, we, we had a customer who was generating... Um, I think from memory, about 190,000 errors an hour, right? Um, and to be to be honest with you, that sounds like a really big number. It's, it's, they're definitely not one of our biggest customers these days in terms of error volume. Fortunately, they have lowered it. But, you know, people actually underestimate exactly how buggy software is. Um, and so nobody wants to deal with 190,000 items. And so we do fingerprinting on that to do that aggregation uh, to try and make it so that you deal more with the a little bit more around the root cause, if you will, you know, or at least the root location information, type of error, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I believe from memory, and I, I could get these numbers wrong now, it's been a little while, but I think that 190,000 turned into, it was either 4,000 or 400 um, groups of data, like root things. And so that's that's already a lot more manageable. And then you think, okay, well, if you then sort by customer impact, you know, and you're chipping away at the top ones, it, it really doesn't actually take that long. Uh, even if you were, say, having a sprint cycle where you only did the top two, as we talked about, uh, within a matter of a few months, most of the biggest things that are causing frustrations for your customers are actually resolved. Um, and and that's how you how you have to try and manage that. Because interestingly enough, this actually goes back to you know how Jeremy and I would would email ourselves errors back in the day. And the the thing that sucked with that is there was no aggregation, right? They were just emails with with the stack traces and other metadata in there. Um, and so you'd have to identify the pattern. And so we took all the learnings of what sucked about doing this in the inbox. And it was like, well, no aggregation. Uh, back in the day, it was the uh, 10 megabyte inboxes, you know, that you'd fill up pretty quick mm -hmm. with these sort of notifications. There was no workflow. I couldn't flag something as resolved and have it come back only if we saw it again or anything like that. So we kind of built on that model. Um, but yeah. That, that, that tends to be how I think about how you try and overcome some of those issues. We've also obviously built a pile of uh, different filters. You know, some folks don't want to see any errors that come from bots. Um, you know, they're not real people. Uh, that sort of thing to, to try and make it a bit more manageable. When I was reading through the book, there was a couple monitoring books that I read. One was The, the Art of Monitoring, and there was a second one, I think, from O'Reilly that was really good. Uh, both, though, featured pretty heavily, for example, the Elk stack and kind of rolling your own. And, and they stressed having a, a very robust, you know, error reporting engine that was at least as strong as your deployment pipeline. Um, but that roll your own approach is very different from software as a service. Obviously, you know, you, you've, you've got a, a dog in the game here, but why do you kind of stress that it's really silly for the most part for, for customers to even a, a, attempt, you know, rolling their own uh, product when it comes to production monitoring? Well, I, I always ask the question, I'm like, is, is that the value that the business is delivering to their customer, right? It's the same thing when, right. when we look internally and say, should we build our own CRM? Nope, because, you know, will the customer care? Not at all. Will the customer care that you hand roll the crash reporting thing? Nope, 
then don't do it. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's one of those fascinating things that I kind of feel like if you're a startup and you start thinking you're going to build your own stuff, then, um, you know, you'll probably never make it out of startup land and you'll probably never succeed because business is hard enough when you're focused on the, the, the task at hand. And the challenge that I run into sometimes when I talk about that is people start to go, yeah, but look, Amazon, look, my, you know, Microsoft, look, Google. And it's like, you know what? These folks were pioneers. They started operating at various scale before uh, there was anything. They had to build it because there was nothing on the shelf for them to go and get. You know, uh, so looking to those folks and saying, well, that's how they do it is, is a bit bizarre to me. Um, I, I do tend to think if it's not part of the core value proposition of the business you're working in, then you should probably just go off the shelf. We certainly get this as well. We get people, like we had somebody the other day, I won't name names, but it was like, we're canceling our Raygun subscription because we've built our own error reporting tool. And I went and had a look and I'm like, okay, you were paying like $70 a month. Your company is not an error reporting company. How many engineers spent how long trying to quote unquote save you $79? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's bizarre to me how somebody thinks that that is an effective use of time. Um, it, it, it just blows my mind. Um, the, the other thing uh, around that is that <laughs> it, 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 it's a challenge trying to, trying to actually often have customers that are software engineers because we, we like to think of ourselves as smart people, right? Like we could figure something out. And so the weirdest thing to me is that uh, when I compare our metrics for customer engagement, uh, anything going to developers has super low engagement, right? They don't want to answer emails. They don't want to have a phone call. They don't want to use a live chat. They've blocked half your scripts. They're doing all these things. Like that's like, leave me the hell alone. And so every now and then, you know, we'll, we'll get some, some email and somebody will just like absolutely lose their shit about something, you know, and I'm like, thank God somebody sent through some feedback and I'll, you know, I'll usually jump on them because I want to make a bit of an impact that, you know, the CEO is looking at the feedback here, but I shoot back. I'm like, look, I'll, I'll kind of ignore the vitriol that can come through in there again, you know, people on the internet. And it's like, this is great feedback. I wish everybody would give us feedback because then we, we can build based more on what you're telling us, right? But for some reason, you get these folks that are like, I do not ever want to talk to a company while I continue to maybe get more and more frustrated about something. And I I, I get it. Like if you're dealing with, don't mean to be, be rude, like a Microsoft or an Amazon, they're at such scale that maybe one voice feels like it doesn't cut through. But outside of the megacorps, you know, these companies are hungry for feedback from their customers about what they would actually love to see. And so it's especially depressing when you have somebody who's like ignored every kind of time you've tried to engage with them and then cancels because they've decided to go and like literally spend probably tens of thousands of dollars to build a half-assed version of the product you've built, been building for five years because it turns out they were annoyed at something that was lacking, but they would never talk to you about it. Interesting. And it, it's just a, very weird behavior in our in our in our industry. Um, you know, I love feedback. It's how you improve, right? It goes back to what I was saying about feedback loops earlier. If you don't have a feedback loop, it's really really hard to to improve well and be well aligned. It, it, it's interesting bringing that out because but, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say the bit that also blows my mind is it's like. <laughs> You know, we've built this thing and it's like, cool, all right, uh, how long did you spend on that? Oh, we, we, we had two engineers for three months and I'm like, cool, okay, so apparently your two engineers in three months have managed to achieve what, you know, 30 engineers have done in five years and, you know, the 30 engineers are going to keep working on that 
problem going forward, but you've, you know, like sometimes I get cheeky. I'm like, can you send me those engineers LinkedIn pages? Because apparently, <laughs> you know, two people can do what takes 30 people five years. So um, I just, there's that whole total cost of ownership stuff too. Like, you know, we've all got those internal systems that suck, right? Uh, because somebody had a great idea. They got built. Now it's another thing to maintain. And it's another thing to maintain that doesn't drive value to their customer. Um, so I should flip this around on the on the off chance that it sounds like the narrative is that people leave Raygun. We actually get a lot of customers that go, we finally decided to take old Yeller out the back and put it down <laughs> and move to, to our hosted solution um, because they want to get stuff done. Is Now, and a lot of times... A lot of times people hold off on things like monitor and, and uh, you know, an error reporting because they feel like, oh, my God, this is going to take, you know, weeks. We don't have time. We don't have time for this. Or this is going to be too difficult. Or this is going to be too expensive. But from what you're telling me, even with a mature product, it should be pretty easy to build in some basic monitoring to tell us what the trouble spots are and, and kind of get ahead of customer complaints. Is that true? It's absolutely true. I mean, it depends on your approach. Um, you know, particularly with our products and a lot of products out there, you know, it's literally, I'll use .NET as an example. Add the NuGet package, put in a couple of lines of code, done. You know, and if you've got a CICD pipeline, wait for the build server, put it out there. You know, it's kind of amusing to me when we look at the metrics as well for people that sign up for a trial. They'll sign up and then we kind of go, well, they haven't seen any data. And we'll, we, we will have some conversations with those people like, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, I didn't have time to get it set up. And we have all this messaging that's like, this, this should only take five to 10 minutes to get set up. Um, but I think people are so used to marketing bullshit that they kind of go, yeah, but everything says five minutes to set up. So I don't trust it. Uh, and then they put it in and go, wow, that actually didn't didn't take long at all. We, we did have one very large American customer and uh, they, they got set up and um, I went and saw them and they said to me, uh, you know, JD, it's really weird. You're the, you're the only vendor we're working with that didn't need to send like, two expensive consultants to work in our office for three months to get this stood up. And I said, oh, you know, is that is that good or bad? And they were like, well, at first we thought it might have been a bad thing, but then we actually just went through the process ourselves and went, oh, okay, you really don't need this here. It just works. Um, so, yeah, I, I and like I say, that's not just, I'm not just trying to, uh, you know, I don't like to be overly salesy, but that's kind of common across a lot of these tools these days uh, in terms of getting it set up. And that's where I find it interesting. Like I'm, I'm actually a, a relative fan of the Elk stack. But the Elk stack stuff, again, is like, okay, dedicated engineer, you maybe want to get consulting, you possibly want to spend tens of thousands of dollars on support, and you know, you've got to buy all these other add-ins and things, or maybe you don't, maybe you try and build them yourself, but it's like, okay, cool. You're, if you're going down that road, you're, you might be thinking, right, well, we need to maybe spend twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, rather than like, well, we could be spending just 100 bucks a month and be set up. So it depends on the stage of the business as well. You know, if you've got data analysts and dedicated ops teams and people like that that actually want to own like an Elk stack or use it for much more data, absolutely, you know, um, fill your boots. But there, there's different products and different ownership costs uh, with all of those. Um, the, the worst thing, the only thing I guess that is bad is when people sort of say, I don't need it. And it's like, man, are you lying to yourself about that? Um, yeah, I've. We have never had a situation where a customer has wondered if the product is working because they had no errors coming through. <laughs> like, doesn't happen. Doesn't matter how small it is. Like, 
suffer as buggy as hell. <laughs> that's really, really, yeah, that's, that's enjoyable. <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot. Now, there's a times where it's kind of a willful blindness, like, hey, we don't need this. other times as engineers or software developers are architects. Uh, it's like, well, this has to get out the door. We really don't have time. We feel like they ask for a quote and we tell them, oh, it'll take us about six, maybe two to three months. They say, well, can you make it, you know, a month and a half? So we take quality off the table. Usually it's our automation, our testing later that, that takes the hit, but also it's our, our deployment um, health in terms of monitoring. Do you, do you kind of feel like engineers need to kind of be a little stronger about saying this is how we do things? We don't roll anything out without a product like Raygun monitoring how our users are doing. Well, I mean, even outside my own biases, um, I think you absolutely need to have that as part of the plan. Uh, we talk about this even internally, and it's obviously something that is thought of in larger companies and often missed a little bit in smaller ones, which is, you know, if I say to you, Dave, I need you to build this feature, and you kind of go, how long is it going to take me to build? But very few people are kind of going, well, it's going to take me this long to build, but then like, what's the operating uh, process afterwards? How are we going to manage this thing that, that Dave's just built? How are we going to make sure that if there's something wrong with it, we know there's something wrong with it? How are we going to monitor it and ensure that, you know, when it goes down, it's going to, you know, reports on things and all of that. And they, they can add a not insignificant amount of time, um, you know, to things. But I always sort of you know talk to our own team about this and, and maybe i'm naive on this front but i usually don't care that much about an estimate um being a long period of time i care more about it being uh close to accurate right um so i would rather have somebody say this is going to take six weeks and i know i have pretty high confidence that when they say six weeks it would take six weeks than saying a person who says it's going to take two weeks and then they it sort of blows out over and over again and the problem is is that if you don't actually think about everything outside of the core build the feature um, that's where you're going to blow out your estimates and things because you didn't actually think about uh, all of the operational support you know we jump straight yeah you know there's that saying you know don't you should actually plan things. You don't kind of go file a new project and start building something. You should have a bit of a bit of a whiteboard session and figure out the architecture. And I know most people still don't actually do that. They'll still start with the code. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. It's like you got to move beyond just the feature you're building or the capability and think about the actual ownership afterwards once once it is deployed. Um, and so, yeah, to, to your point, I think I think software engineers need to kind of say this is important. I mean, I guess you know, look look at things like the 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 Boeing issues with the the recent planes and the software issues in there, um, and you know, it's kind of coming back to just inadequate testing, um, you know, bad bad processes that are in there. Now that's an extreme case because people, you know, died from 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 bad software, um, but imagine if. Like, how would you feel if you were flying and they said, you know what, we decided we're not even going to put black box flight recorders in these things anymore. <laughs> we don't want to know how it blew up or where it went. You know, that, that, that wouldn't be acceptable. So why do we think it's acceptable when we're actually building all of our other software that we should somehow be flying blind? It's so funny. It's like we would never even think of getting behind the wheel of a car that didn't have a dashboard. But we design software all the time, and we just throw it over the fence um, without thinking about yeah. how it's going to work. A absolutely. Um, and, you know, obviously the whole DevOps movement 
is, you know, we've talked about this. I, I don't personally think of it as a pure tooling play. Um, I, I think of it more as a culture and ownership and accountability and all of that, that good stuff that actually is the traits of um, high-performing teams. Uh, and, and so it is starting to say, well, think about it once it's in the wild. You know, what, what are you actually going to do? Like, how, how are you going to actually work with this thing? You know, the great thing, even, you know, we have technical, obviously very technical customers. And, and our software is, you know, it also has bugs in it. And so when somebody sort of says something went wrong, the great thing is we can, we can actually kind of go, oh, yeah, I can see the actual details of the error. You don't need to send me any details. You don't have to tell me what you clicked. You don't even have to you know, really tell me how to reproduce it. We've captured that. And so that means that we don't have to antagonize the user at all by asking them questions about stuff or relying on their memory. Um, but we can we can turn around a resolution faster. And the thing that I found fascinating in this whole space is that if you actually fix something for a customer really quickly, you take somebody who, let's say they were had a 50% rating for how much they liked your software. They have an issue, maybe that drops to 40% or 30%. If you actually fix it really quickly for them and you go back and say, we resolved this issue like within a few days, that's suddenly at like 80% love of your product right? Because it's like, holy shit, these people get it, you know, like that they fix this thing and it creates this great relationship with your users. And it just blows my mind that nobody seems to take advantage of this customer engagement mechanism that delights people. Like I've often thought to myself, you know, maybe it's a bit spooky, but everybody gets those pop-ups from time to time. That's like, you know, Microsoft Word has to close, you know, it basically, it, it, it died. Do you want to send this to Microsoft? You know, and, and I'll be honest, I always say no, you know, and I own a crash reporting company. <laughs> and the reason is, is there's no feedback loop. I feel like I'm sending it into the void. Now, what would happen if Microsoft actually said, you know what, we get these reports and there is an ID and, you know, you have to pay for it or be logged into Office. But what if I got an email that said, you know, Office does silent updates, but there was an email that maybe it even came from like the program manager or something. Say, JD, it can be automated. That issue you reported, you know, three weeks ago has now been fixed in the latest patch. Really appreciate you reporting this. Like, holy shit, I'm going to tell everybody about how amazing <laughs> Microsoft is in supporting their software. Um, but there's no feedback loop in there to the customer. So there's always more and more feedback loops we can keep putting in there that are going to delight people. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see more of it. Yeah. And you and I talked back in our interview, you had one of the, the best quotes in the book where you said, you know, for most of our engineers, their world is, you know, extends from the back of their head to the front of the monitor. That's it. 18 inch, you know. <laughs> and so anything we could do, yeah. like like you, you said, listen, I... Remember you said uh, we, we try to get our people to, to show up at trade shows and they, they kick and scream, yep. but this transformation happened. Yeah, absolutely. So that's right. We say, hey, we're going to do a trade show and we want to take some engineers because we sell to engineers. They don't want to talk to, to salespeople, right? They want to be able to nerd out a little bit and understand. And so, yeah, they, they, they kind of go like, oh, do I have to be at the booth? Blah, you know? <laughs> and you get them there. And yeah, so a few hours later, they're pumped, right? It's like, Oh, I met three customers and they told me how like 
you know, this is actually a good forum for actually getting feedback from customers because you talk to them there and they feel proud about what it is they've done and understanding how it's impacted those people. And they start describing the product to people who don't know what we do, you know, and they're like, oh, okay, this is crazy. Here are these issues. Oh, I never thought about these things these ways. And it builds this, this understanding. Um, like we have this, we have this support model internally and it drives the, it drives the engineering team nuts, right? In fact, I would probably go so far as there'll be some folks that when they hear me say this would think, gosh, I would never want to work at Raygun. Um, but all, all of the customer contact that does come through when somebody has an issue goes straight to the engineers. They have a roster. They are the ones that have to respond to the customers about the problems that they might be experiencing with the software, right? And of course, this is super annoying because it's like, but I've got this work I want to get done, JD. Like, I just want to focus on this. And I've sort of sat there and said, look, if I take that away, and, you know, we're not at that many trade shows, but if I take that away, when are you ever going to talk to a customer, mm -hmm. right? Will you ever talk to a customer? You won't. And that's, that's a really bad idea for building empathy with the actual user. And so while they kind of hate it, a lot of our customers have said, God, I love the support we get from Raygun because I just talk directly to an engineer who understands it. It's not a frontline support person who is trying to use, you know, a, a knowledge management tool to give me some generic answer. They're like, yeah, I went and had a look in the code and I can see that I did something dumb over here. I'll <laughs> go and fix it. And my wife often talks about this uh, as well. And, and I know she's quoting someone, but I don't know who, which is you, you've always got to connect the people that can that are feeling the pain to the people who can fix the pain. And the further apart those people are, the less likely it is to ever fix the pain. You know, and an extreme example of this that I always highlight is, you know, how many of us have phoned up to some service and sit there on hold listening to your call is important to us. You know, right. <laughs> we are very having, clearly um, is not. <laughs> yeah, ex right. Exactly. It's always unprecedented call volume. You're like bullshit, you know, um, but that's because the, again, the people who can actually fix the things, they're just going to have a person who's going to either try and give you a workaround, try and like do something to like briefly, you know, make you feel better, but they're not actually fixing it. So, I say to the team when they say to me, they're like, "Ah, oh, we don't, we don't want to be on in, uh, on this intercom thing and, and handling this customer thing." So I'm like, you, "Do you want less of this?" And it's like, "Yeah, yeah, we do." And it's like, "Cool, fix the bug. The customer won't be complaining to you about an issue, you know, if you fix the problem they're having." <laughs> so, so it's this miraculous forcing function of like, you can fix the pain. You're hearing about the pain, and your complaint is that you're hearing about the pain. Well, cool, just just fix the issues then. Um, and it's, it's amazing how quickly things get fixed when that, when the person has the tools to actually resolve the issues is the one that's hearing about them. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because so many times um, I, I talk to teams that are like, listen, we're just eight to 10 people. We, we cannot do production support. And I, I call them out on them. Like, I don't, I think you can, I think you should be able to spend at least you can maybe have rotating person and, or, or do like a 20%, but you should spend some, there has to be some skin in the game for the software engineers to provide reliable software. They have to feel that pain. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we had somebody who applied for a role and said, look, love everything about the, the products and, you know, all of this, but I'm not, I, you know, I want to be excluded from, from sort of owning the code, they, they wouldn't work here, you know. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, 
I'll be honest, there's a few people that we, we have effectively moved on because they just don't want to take ownership. And it's like, nope, those days are done. You know, it's sitting in the basement coding and being in love with the algorithm you've put together. You know, that that's great for your home projects. That's not great for business. It's not great for customers. You have to think about the user and not wanting to own it is is just a cop out. You know, and I'd say to, to your point where they say they can't, what I actually hear is I don't want to. <laughs> it's like, cool, you know. What's what's the next stage in that evolution? I don't want to come to work. Like, <laughs> like sorry, it's like you got to do something. It's 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 much like eating your greens or exercising. It's a harder thing, especially if we only do it every now and then. We we, we dread it. So, um, yeah. Is it, so? Let's say that I'm. Two more questions. Um, let's say that I'm a, a larger enterprise and I've got this um, very. This is not your typical startup product. It's been around for sometime it's your classic monolith how would you help on ramp them with raygun is there any best practices around user monitoring for, around things like legacy yeah sure um so the the first and foremost thing so we've sort of danced around this so we have these three products right there is the crash reporting one that's our oldest product so we tend to talk a little bit more about it but real user monitoring is about understanding the performance that the user is experiencing so for example one of our larger customers uses this uh on a streaming service and we've tracked 88 million concurrent viewers on that platform at its peak to help them understand and it, it's kind of disappointing that you <laughs> real user monitoring it sounds like a privacy invasion sort of tool but it's actually just about understanding the performance and identifying where are the issues in performance and then we have an apm product that's sort of doing that server-side code monitoring so that's the order we release those products and they have varying levels of maturity, APM being the newest one. So crash reporting supports about 25 to 30 different languages and platforms. You know, there's scripts out there for people who are tracking old um, classic ASP applications. We actually have a whole lot of cold fusion developers that use this stuff. Like thinking that everybody is, you know, hey, it's Tuesday now in the States. Everybody's on .NET Core 3 now, right? Um, but that that doesn't really happen. To your point, there's a lot of legacy code out there. And so as long as they can actually access the code to make a change, um, you can you can integrate crash reporting really easily. It doesn't matter if it's a monolith, microservice, whatever. It, it, it's it's pretty basic. Um, and in some languages, uh, like take for example .NET, you can uh, well that's a framework, but you know you can actually integrate just the module at the web config level without any code changes if you just want the unhandled exception. So you can slip that in pretty easily. Real user monitoring, because that runs, because that's measuring the customer experience, that always has to be uh, wherever the customer uh, code is. So for example, that means it integrates with JavaScript, Xamarin's stuff, native iOS, Android, because you have to be collecting the metrics from the user's device to understand how long requests and load times and all of that talk. Uh, so that one's pretty, you know, that's kind of like integrating Google Analytics. It's a, it's a pretty quick one. And then APM, that that's, if you're using like full .NET framework or something, uh, because it's an earlier product for us, that, that, that'll be fine. We do have .NET Core support as well, and we're adding additional languages, but that, because that's using more of a profiling thing, you don't actually even need to do code instrumentation. So that one you can actually set up uh, and and track any software that you that you want that we do support, which obviously, like I'm saying, is, at the moment is not a heck of a lot as we 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 coming out in a couple of months with Ruby support, Node support, Java support, and all of that. 
but generally they're pretty pretty easy to kind of get set up regardless of of the, the sort of age of the app um the reason i say as well having access to actually make code changes is um we, we kind of had this as a question the other day from a customer and they said well it's actually a prospect they said i can't make any code changes how can i set up crash reporting and it was like well you can't actually make any code changes what's the value of crash reporting just to see how bad it is like you can't change it that's a, you know it's about as useful as uh write only memory um it's it's not not that useful um but yeah so so generally it, it's pretty straightforward with the, with these sorts of things because i and i think we're quite fortunate that we're at a stage uh in in the software industry where a lot of people um uh, have have sort of put in the extra legwork now to use things like profilers and those those sorts of technologies to mean that you don't need to put in invasive tracing code or instrumentation. Um, there certainly are products out there that need a lot of instrumentation, and our approach has always been let's make the eighty percent case be like fall off a log easy, and then if you wanted to attach you know custom tags from the code, maybe some custom metadata. Uh, user information, whatever the heck you want to attach to these blobs, sure, then you need instrumentation. But that should really be the cherry on top. Do you see some common aspects in the customers that are successful with with everything around performance monitoring? Is there some best practices you can see with the, with the companies that really take this on and suddenly their their end user experience is so much better over you know a year or two? Yeah. Um, well, first and Foremost, I, I do feel like even in the monitoring space, I mean, Datadog came out, uh, you know, they, they've obviously been wildly successful and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for them, even though they are um, a competitor with us in a, in, a, in a couple of categories now. But they, they wrote in their S1 that, you know, they believe less than 5% of software is monitored these days. Um, and I feel like customer centricity is actually the key driver in this. Uh, is well, at least if it's at a business level concern. If it's only being rolled out by the engineers, it's usually more of a case of like, I'm super frustrated that I can't figure out some of these bugs and I need more info. But the best the best integration, the best customer engagements we have is where it's actually uh, both the engineers and the business folks coming together. So it might be a product owner, a product manager, that sort of person who can say, well, look, you know, we want to see great customer outcomes. We need to see that our software is meeting the market, that our customers love us, and we want to try and get to that point. And the engineer is sort of going, cool, well, you know, I'm, I support that mission, and I'm going to do everything I can to, to, to resolve that. And then something like what Raygun provides really, really helps in there. That This kind of comes back, it, in a way, you're fusing together a whole lot of topics here. Like we talked about building stuff yourself. If you're building these things that don't provide customer value, I would argue like that that, that business is not customer centric in the first place, and therefore the the likelihood of success is pretty minimal. Um, you know, you you need to again. I'm talking startups that don't necessarily have teams to to run bigger bigger things like that. But yeah, we've seen customers that have succeeded. Um, Terrifically. So, so one one story that we have is uh, Domino's Pizza, mm-hmm. and so they 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 work with Raygun. Um, <clears throat> now, this is a bit of an old stat, and I know you and I have talked about it before, but there was this uh, there was this article I read a few years ago, um, and it said uh, if you if you had ten thousand dollars to invest in, I think it was two thousand and eight, right, um, and you could choose between Google to invest in, Microsoft, Amazon. Facebook or Domino's Pizza. <laughs> now, obviously, you know where I'm going with this. 
the best returns came if you invested in Domino's Pizza, right? But no one's really doing a whole lot of uh, talking about how great Domino's Pizza is as an investment compared to like, hey, Amazon's a trillion dollars and you know Apple's a trillion dollars. Um, but <clears throat> my experience with working with them has been that they have a phenomenally customer-centric attitude inside their business. So they ended up, the, when I read this article, I believe the, the answer was that you would have made about a 2,000% better return if you had invested in Domino's over the tech companies. Um, they, they are absolutely obsessed with ensuring that customers have a great experience going through and ordering pizza, you know, and I think it's no surprise when that's your driving attitude that you're adopting these sorts of tools. You're, you're really focused on getting rid of as many problems as you can for your customers and making it a great, great experience for them and that your business actually succeeds because of it. Hmm. Well, JD, like, I, I, yeah, well, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, just to add, I know we've kind of gone over a bit on time, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, it, that is so, it, that is the, the core of it, right? Everybody in your business has to be thinking about the customer. If you're actually thinking about the customer, it, 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 it's very difficult to actually have, uh, to, to be making terrifically bad decisions. I think most companies uh, preach that at the top levels. And if you talk to many CEOs, they would be, they would probably express a lot of frustration that that, the 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 um, they're preaching customer obsession, but it's not showing up in our actions at the engineering or, or tech level. We're still very tech focused. Yeah, still very. We're you very, mentioned a lot of us come kind of have yeah. are on the autistic spectrum. We're maybe a little uncomfortable interacting with human beings. We're a little more comfortable with you know APIs and and computer constructs. So yeah, but that's the that's the like going to the five whys. Why are we doing this? At some point, yes. you find that you're doing it for for people. Um, you know, uh, it's it was kind of interesting. Like, I, I know we've got a rap, but one of my favorite people in the world is uh, John Carmack from Ed Software, right? And if you read this great book, it's called uh, The Masters of Doom, and it tells the story of early Ed Software. Now, John is clearly, like, just a phenomenal engineer, right? Like, he, Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake, all these things. But then there was John Romero. Now, John Romero was, the, was more of the game designer. And, you know, he, he leaves id Software, kind of has this little bit of an infight, really. He leaves id Software around the time of uh, Quake coming out from memory. It might have been after Quake 1 or just before Quake 1. And the thing was is that no matter how technically great their products were after that, they, they kind of, they, they weren't as fun. Like, you know, because the thing was is John knows how to build some amazing technology, but in a way... Uh, John Romero was the was the guy thinking about the actual the actual user, the customer. Like, what's going to be a great experience for them, you know? And 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 once you disconnected those two, yeah, look, John's technology was great, and they made a whole lot of money out of licensing his engines. Um, but as gamers, you know, we we didn't kind of see a follow. Like, Rage came out, and it wasn't kind of like a Doom moment or a Quake moment or a Wolfenstein moment, right? You got to always go, no matter how much of an engineer you are what is good for the customer i remember when uh, just kind of wrap wrap things up you you we talked about a friend of yours um i forget his name but he said it's not the big that eats the small it's the fast that eats yeah the slow. so so this is a, a this is a chap here from wellington new zealand his name's uh rod drury so he built a company called zero xero and he built it from a startup 10 years ago to i think they have an eight or nine billion dollar market cap today they are like the Intuit 
of the rest of the world outside America, right? Um, they they're they're doing really well, and that was yeah. He he used to always say that he's like, it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we've covered today is all about how do we get our teams to be faster, how do we make them more effective, uh, because that's going to help these businesses win by being fast. It, it's it's not enough to be big. Big big just means you're slower to <laughs> like maybe maybe it takes a long <laughs> while to atrophy away, but you know the the small. You know, I think that's why a lot of large companies often buy smaller companies is that, yes, they maybe want the technology, maybe they want the revenue if it's big enough, but they also want to kind of continually reinfuse that entrepreneur, let's get going, let's be fast, uh, sort of uh, folks back in. You know. I, I, it really stood out when we were talking oh, so long ago. Um, it's like your product uh, and that of Launch Darkly. I was like, if I was writing software today, I would make this like a standard. Um, because I felt like mm-hmm. it gets back to that, the heart of things where uh, moving as fast as you mentioned, DevOps isn't about tools necessarily. It's about making the engineering team as reliably fast as possible. How fast can we respond? So if we don't close that loop, if we don't plug the lamp into the wall, we're not going to get light. It, we're not going to be able to improve. And to me, Raygun just gets right to the heart of things of, of plugging into that source, the customer making sure that what we do adds value. Absolutely. We talk about in an agile, right? Small, fast iterations. We need to take that to a larger scope more broadly about uh, our entire software delivery, in fact, our entire businesses. Well, John Daniel, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this and uh, our talking with you. And and uh, congratulations again on on Henry's arrival and uh, your your son. I think it's just terrific. You're a new dad. It's wonderful. It's been it's been a real pleasure. I uh, watching him. I'm um I, I'm kind of a bit terrible, and I keep thinking about machine learning with him. Eh? Like I'm watching him, <laughs> and it, like he started to screech the other day. And I was like, okay, once attention. And I'm like, there is no way I'm giving this a feedback loop of uh, you get attention when you scream. You know, <laughs> like, I don't want you to learn that trait. Um, <laughs> so, so it's been fascinating uh, to, to, to watch him learning. It's been really okay. great. Machine learning and the, the six-month-old and the temper tantrums in the grocery store. You kind of you learn not to, you know, not, not to feed that wolf. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it also tells me we've got so far to go on machine learning because, you know, we're talking, but then, you know, sometimes you sing to a kid and you're like, and it's like, okay, he's, he's going to figure out that that beeping sound is not words. And yet when I think about machine learning today, you know, nearly all the work is in cleaning the data. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, these, these kids, they, they don't need the data cleaned. They don't think that these beeps and random noises are words. Um, they figure that out. So how do, how do we solve the cleaning of data uh, to, to be more automatic? <laughs> but anyway, it's all for another day. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I look forward to seeing you soon. Um, love, Raygun. And uh, I know you guys are going to continue going onward and upward. I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.